Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206 206- 451-4220. It is Wednesday, November 8th. My guest today has many, many hidden talents. Unfortunately, he hasn't found any of them that he's stuck with. Over the time, he's been a punk rocker, caregiver, bartender, telemarketer, car salesman, radio host, comedy show writer, and most importantly, a father. He's also known for a few books that you may have heard, all about Lulu, West of Here, The Revised Fundamentals of Caregiving, This Is Your Life, Harriet Chance, and his upcoming fifth novel, Lawn Boy. Welcome, Johnny Evison. How you doing, Johnny? Good. Thanks for having me, Tim. It's good to have you, man. I've been wanting to have you on for a long time. It's good to sit down and talk with you for a little extended period of time. Hey, tell me what it was like growing up on Bainbridge Island as a child and how you see it differently now that you have three children yourself that are about to grow up here. Oh, that's a quagmire. Yes. I don't want to sound like one of these old fogies. I mean, the Island in the seventies when we came here was amazing. I mean, it's still an amazing place to live. Don't get me wrong. It's changed. It's gentrified and so forth. But in the seventies, it was like, I remember I mean, a good example is that uh, the one of, there was three grocery stores. There was the IGA, there was T&C, and there was Thriftway. So when the Thriftway closed, it's like there was this big empty storefront. And so you'd think, you know, oh, gosh, this is the chance where, uh, you know, for years the chain stores had tried to get in, but Bainbridge just wouldn't let them in until that McDonald's went in in the 80s or early 90s or whenever that was. But so when the Thriftway closed, they reopened it as a grease paint repertory theater, okay? Yeah. I mean, that's how, yeah, that's how the, the, this place, it was just, it was artsy. It was a, there was always some money here. There was some vacation homes and things like that. But like, you look at my high school yearbook, for instance, in the 80s, and it really wasn't that white. I mean, yeah, we only had one black kid, Clark Hagerman, who's a cop in Seattle now. But I mean, there's a lot of Filipino faces. There's a lot of Japanese faces. There's a lot of uh, native faces. And so like grew up in this rural place, totally beautiful, 
close to a major urban center, and um, and, and yet it was like it was really diverse, and that's rare. I'm out in Squim half the time now, and, and, and Squim is not very diverse. So I would say the island was just very artsy, very diverse then. Um, there was about a third of the people. Um, it just had a little bit more of that Mayberry feel. What um, about wildlife? Was there a lot more um, wildlife on the island? Well, that's then? interesting. Um, actually, there was probably less encounters with wildlife because the ecotone has just grown so much, you know? I mean, that's when you start to see, you know, we saw coyotes a lot as a kid, but I hear them more than ever now just because they don't have the habitat. So, um, yeah, it was the, it, I would say it was roughly the same. You know what I mean? They hunted most of the undulate population in the early 20th century and ran the bears out of here, but it was the same thing when I was a kid, like, uh, you know, every now and then a bear would swim over from Port Orchard. So, you, but that 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 no, that hasn't changed that much. In fact, you know the island just besides all the development in terms of like the, the the areas that are protected just get more beautiful, because you know if you came here in the early 20th century, I mean they they'd log this place to to splinter. You know, I mean if you looked at the island over Elliott Bay, it was just like you know stubbled hillsides. But now, like you know, some of that stuff from that wasn't cut in 18. 40, 1850, 1860 through the 1890s is like, you know, almost, it is terminal, you know, old growth fur, like in the, you know. North California type and, big trees. Well, not that big, but I mean, just go out to the Grand Forest now and you got furs that are six, seven feet in diameter. Beautiful. I, I love how the Grand Forest is connected now. It's, it's an awesome, awesome area. What, what was school like back then? Uh, elementary and middle school and high school has has it changed dramatically on well i've seen the high school rebuilt three times since i came here it looks uh when we first got much here different right yeah the year we first got here in 76 was the year it burned down and it was just a two-story brick building i don't know that story tell yeah, me i don't know what the story is i forgot it just got burned down it burned down in 76 and that was the year we moved here and uh then it it stood in its you know th- then they built a lower more sprawling campus um which some of that footprint is still there i think and now it's just it's beautiful same with wilkes i went to wilkes my kid my, you know my oldest son goes to wilkes now and um shout out to owen yeah it's different i mean wilkes it, it's neat i love the continuity that he's going to the same elementary school i went to but dude when i went there it was like these moldering portables with black mold and you know this you know ancient damp brick building with linoleum and now it's like it looks it's as beautiful as any college campus i've been on recently yeah it's really nice they've like, done a good job glassed in causeways and uh, it's beautiful um you played music when you were in high school what got you started doing that was it you just you're going going through your average um, well, you know grade I and you, i was you a singer so i didn't really play music i screamed i was i was in punk bands and uh, I guess, yeah, it was probably skateboarding that got, got me into it because, you know, uh, punk rock and, and skate culture sort of uh, came of age together in the late 70s, early 80s. So uh, I started getting in punk rock when I was about 13, I think, 12 or 13. Started a band called March of Crimes. I uh, ended up, uh, you know, some of the guys in the band went on to, you know, Stoney went on to Pearl Jam, Ben went on to Soundgarden. Um, we played gigs in Seattle and Portland, West Coast and stuff like that. And uh, I also started a fanzine called Simplex One. I just did record reviews, band interviews, like op-ed pieces, terribly, no proofreader. I mean, I spelled Seattle wrong on the cover of one of them. Come on, I'm 13. I spelled Seattle with one T. Um, The amazing thing is, is I would go to the library and I'd make like 200 copies of this thing. It was probably like, you know, each issue is like, 
maybe 20 pages long. And so I go to the library and make 400 copies for, you know, 20 bucks, staple these things together and then distribute them at like Time Travelers and Urban Renewal, the comic stores and the punk stores in Seattle, the punk record stores. And, um, and then I had a few subscribers. But this is so far pre-internet. The thing that was really just amazing, inspiring to me that, that people would end up with this fanzine in, in Anchorage, in, in Cleveland, Ohio, in San Diego, all over the place, all over the country. This little subculture was getting a hold of, you know, I mean, I just, I, you would take something like that for granted right now. We could just make that happen instantaneously. But like it, it was, it was, uh, it was a testament to how strong and imaginative the subculture was of the, the early eighties. I think that people had to really make a cognizant effort to sort of unite. Were you a sub pop, easy street or tower records type shopper? Well, sub pop wasn't even started then. I think sub pop is probably 88. And I was out of the scene by 86. I'd still go to shows. Um, yeah, I remember shopping on shopping at, uh, many times, shopping at that tower on Queen Anne. But uh, I go mostly to Time Travelers and Urban Renewal. And back then, there was like a couple of good used record stores on the Ave. Yeah, you have a pretty extensive collection of vinyl, right? I got a lot of vinyl. And it's like, you know, my collection's in its second or third incarnation because, you know, I used to move around so much. There was a point where I probably had a thousand records, most, mostly punk records, a gold mine. God, I wish I still had them. They're so expensive now. Um, I mean, I've spent thousands of dollars trying to, to build some of that stuff back up and some of it isn't, you can't even find it anymore. But so now I'm, I'm back up to, I don't know, 3000 records. What do you do with them all? I listen to them every constantly. Day? Yeah, every day. I'm, I mean, not every one, obviously. Right. Do the math, but I mean, there's you know, there's some stuff in there that doesn't get a ton of play. But after a while, I, I've limited my footprint how big it can get, and still fit a shuffleboard table, a ping pong table, two dart boards, and a poker table into my man cave. I have a set footprint. So, like, if there's something in there that doesn't get played for a few months, it it end up going to the Goodwill because I never stop buying records. So that might look like, you know, Eddie Rabbit might end up going to the Goodwill. <laughs> just But, you know, one, one, once in a while, once every couple of years, man, you got to hear, I love a rainy night, you know, just for nostalgia. But <laughs> now I can't do that. It's gone. You have to draw the line somewhere. If you're going to put in that, like, 16th Kinks record, something's got to go. Do, do you have a favorite go-to song or album? Way too many to, to think, yeah. of, you know. I could maybe na- narrow it to 100. Bobby Womack, that's my my I man. I like Bobby Womack. He, he, I like Bobby Womack. I'm a big big Wilson Pickett fan. I'm a big fan of Joe Tex. I like the '60s R&B. Once the once the once white people started appropriating rock and roll, um, that's kind of where the thrust of black music went. Was that early '60s soul? People like Howard Tate. I love that. Um, yeah, Sam Cooke, sure. incredible artist. Yeah, started as a gospel. Yeah, singer. All all those hits, sweet sixteen. You know, she was only sixteen. All that. Those were gospel songs that he just rewrote the lyrics to. And he also discovered, quote, Ella Fitzgerald for us. Or not Ella. I mean, sorry, sorry, sorry. What am I talking? Don't worry. We don't fact check. Yeah, no. You know who I'm talking about? Aretha Franklin. Hey, proper respect. She was another. Aretha was another. Ah, I see what you did there. Aretha was another gospel singer who crossed over. So what was the premise of March of Crimes? Um, where did that name come from? You just watching a Jerry Lewis telethon and change a couple letters? Uh, it, you know, it rhymed. 
and it sounds kind of badass. You know what I mean? It was very, it was, uh, you know, I mean, where, where was it? Where did it begin? It just began in, in, in the, in the ennui of, uh, the Reagan era conformity, you know, that, you know, the, from 80 to 88 was, you know, it was crazy times. It went from basically punk, well, it went disco, new wave, punk, then it um, kind of R&B and uh, all that glam rock, you know, the long hair and David Lee Roth and all that. There was a constant change in music and genre, I thought, during that time. It was a good time to grow up. There was samples of all kinds of music, and it was nice. It was really nice. Um, we had a record store here on the island, dude. It was in the Radio Shack, man. They had about Radio Shack three hundred records. So you would go into the Radio Shack, which is in the Winslow, in the Winslow Mall. There's a little clothes shop back there now. Yeah, they're not Lollipops. Is it Lollipops? I don't know. It's the one near the back. But that was a that was a Radio Shack, and they had a rack of maybe you know, hundred fifty records, dude. I go down there with my, my paper route money, my lawn <laughs> mowing money. There's there's a record store on the island on Winslow, right? That you. Go get yeah, some my vinyl. buddy Raymond's place. Let's give Raymond a shout out. Yeah, what's it called again? It's called Backstreet Beats. Backstreet Beats. Go it's check it out. It's by Raymond. He's a good fit and good man. I'm in there a couple times a week just, you know, yeah, shooting was, the shit. I was, um, I'm always spending money. Yeah, I was talking to him the other day, getting a haircut at Sandy's. You're a Chuck's, Chuck's guy, though, right? Chuck has been cutting my hair since 1976. Wow. Yeah. He, in fact, we used to call him the young guy because... Uh, you know, he used to work at Sandy's, and I still see Sandy every day, too, walking up my dirt road. Um, his real name is Hiram Sanderson, but they called him Sandy. And so Sandy was, Jesus, he was old then. He was old in 1976. And there would be, there's two chairs in the shop. There was Sandy, and then there was Chuck. And there would be like 12 kids in there. I mean, it would just be packed to the gills. And Sandy's, Sandy's stool would be open every time <laughs> he was so grumpy <laughs> nobody wanted to have sandy cut his hair I mean, he just said mean shit to you I mean, he's just like you're the worst customer i had all day he was just a hard ass so like you'd have that empty chair and sandy be like who's next and everybody just kind of looked down at their tennis shoes and they'd say i'm waiting for the young guy i'm waiting for <laughs> chuck so he was like he was known as chuck the young guy and now i'm going to him today actually me and owner both getting our haircut from him today at 245 coincidentally and so uh now chuck is you know Salt and pepper. He's in his sixties. Not he's not the young guy anymore, man. Second generation yeah. for you guys too. That's yeah, cool. I know. I, I love the continuity that and Wilkes and I mean that's that's why I still have one foot on this island, man. It's just you know that and it's closer to Seattle, but there's still a lot of what I always loved about the island still here, like the core of it. Eagle Harbor Books, you know. I mean, I've been buying books at that bookstore for thirty years. It's an incredible store. Yeah, I love what they do there. Um. What what's going on with you right now in life? What's crack a lacking? Well, I've got three kids. I've just had you know, had about the first year I've had out, uh, off of, of actual like hardcore touring for ten years. You know, I mean, for like nine years in a row, I was doing you know fifty to eighty cities a year because um, there was always a hardback, always a paperback. There was always something to do, and I've I've uh, I'm just coming off the it'll all begin up again next fall but that i believe will be like a year and a half in a row that i've had to do none of that so i've been able to really focus on family and uh i've been able to uh write my butt off you know all that time now is 
gets split up between family. And I mean, it's time consuming, you know, that's, that's, you know, hundred days, that's a, you know, one of every four days of your year. And now, so I, I have much more writing time. So I'm, I'm writing my butt off. I'm just I'm on the tails of probably, I don't know, maybe the most prolific six weeks I've ever had. I must've piled up 120 pages over the last six weeks. And it's like, uh, it's, it's been gestating for a while. So it's, I'm, I'm excited. I'm in a good place. I just turned 49. I don't feel old. I just feel like a you know twenty five year old that's got something the matter with him. <laughs> you know, I'm still. I mean, I'm. These are my best years of my life. That's what's amazing to me. I mean, dude, great. I mean, I, when I was thirty eight, man, I was eating pot pies. I was a marginally employed, you know, landscaper. I was happy then too. I'm always. I'm a happy guy. But like before I had kids and everything, man, dude, I was. I was a pretty. I was pretty much a sad sack on paper. Never made over like ten grand a year. Starving artist, seven, eight unpublished books. Wasn't really having much success with that. Partying my ass off. Still doing that. But uh, now I'm 49 and it's like, I don't know. This is, I mean, this is like, I'm having my heydays right now. That's awesome. Life's never been better. What's a typical writer's day look like in, in the world of Johnny? A typical Johnny writer's day? Well, well that would be a, uh, that would be, okay, it starts on Sunday. So the whole family goes out to the swim where we got cabin up in the hills. We have a nice weekend, you know, taking hot tubs, doing puzzles, whatever, having having a good time. And then Sunday afternoon, I go down to the dive bar, the Oasis, where I watch the Seahawks game. And the family packs up and goes back to the island, gets ready for school. And then uh, Sunday night, I come home after the Hawks game. It's usually, you know, 5, 5.30. I make a little dinner. And then uh, I just get right into it. I write for about eight hours straight. Don't even come up for air. Um, and then I'll, I'll stay up till maybe three in the morning. And I'll wake up the next morning, maybe eight thirty nine, And I just get right back into it. I make a pot of coffee. And then I pretty much write the next 16 hours straight. And um, I, I, I move rooms around, you know. I mean, focus has been a problem for me traditionally. But with my writing, it's not. Because it's that's what I do. I mean, that's, that's why I write. I think I was saying something to you about it the other day or something about, uh, I figured out the reason I write is not, uh, not because I'm just compelled to tell stories or that I'm compelled to entertain or that I just have to get it out or that I'm doing any kind of therapy. Uh, I'm doing all those things too, but the real reason I write, and it took me, you know, decades to realize it is just that I yearn for those big blocks of uninterrupted focus. Because if you haven't been able to tell, I'm pretty manic. I'm all over the place. So actually, you know, when I'm in my writing zone for like 16 hours, that's my heaven. And I have no trouble maintaining that. Uh, I might move move around room to room. I'll sit in my green chair. Maybe I'll go upstairs in the loft. Maybe I'll go down to the garage. And then usually after about the 10, 12-hour point, it's like I start drinking a little beer, Um, a little being a lot. Um, Mind you, my kids aren't there. I'm just – I'm being responsible. But – so Hemingway used to say, you know, write drunk, edit sober. Uh, I, I don't buy it. I, I do it the other way. I write sober, then I edit drunk because my bullshit meter is just about here. <laughs> when I'm, you know, once you have a few beers in me, I mean, I can hear a false note from a mile away. I'm just brutal. The truth I'm, comes I'm, out. Yeah, yeah I'm, 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 I'm probably overstep the boundaries sometimes, but that's all right. You know, better to be really hard on yourself than not hard enough. And so, um, yeah, and then I'll wake up. Tuesday morning, I usually put in about four or five more focused hours, and then I come back here to the island and 
be a family dad again until Friday and then start the ritual over. Oh, so you do take time to leave it alone. You're not like, hey, hold on. I got this thought. I got to go Never. write it down. No, no. I mean, that's the whole goal is to try. I mean, I'm texting myself like 20 times a day with little ideas. But, you know, there's time to do that when I'm pushing the baby. You know, I push the baby for a walk or something. Mm-hmm. I maybe had an idea about where I'm at, where I'm going or something thematically. And then I'll, I'll send myself little notes. But I try to just be there. That's the whole thing. I try to, I try to use the focus I use in my writing as this stellar example of what I can be. All the time. So when I'm parenting, I try to be really focused on that. And you're a parent, you know, that's not always easy. Got to be so, present. Yeah. And, 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 you know, speaking to the larger question, this always has to change. You know what I mean? I used to be a work a day, wake up. If you asked me this question for eight years ago, it'd be so like, I did. wake up at four in the morning. I write till noon. I do it six days a week. But then your family comes around, you're, everybody has different needs. And so that's the one thing I've learned is right. You know, I get into right now, what I just described is my rhythm. That may change, you know, with the kids' school schedules. I mean, like for instance, last year it was, is this boring? I mean, do, I mean I'm just, no, no, no. I'm just picking my account. Well, last year it was Wednesdays and Thursdays and then going into Friday. But you know what I'm saying? It always has to be – it's always in flux according to everybody else's needs. Yeah, change is important and you have to adapt to change. And the people that are unwilling to change don't succeed. So I get it. So is that something you do on your laptop? You write with a pen, pencil? Yep, that's changed too. I used to be a, a – Type it out, print it, then do some longhand on top of the printout, and then type it back in, and then do longhand. And I think now, um, I think there's advantages to that because I think they utilize two different points of view kind of in a way. I mean, like I I always noticed that like – like I never wrote great dialogue longhand because I couldn't – I'm kind of a slow longhand writer. And so I couldn't – you know, whereas I can type like 80 words a minute at least if I'm just from not from dictation but out of my head so I can whoop through these dialogue scenes and just be in real time and really be there and capture the energy but I tend to with uh, with with longhand I tend to make more um, um, macro observations bigger story and thematic observations when I can see it at a little bit of a distance so um, I still try to do a mix of both of those but just because I don't have a printer anymore I usually um I'm I'm doing everything on my laptop now and then, you know, every couple of weeks I print the whole thing out and then I spend a week with it printed out. So I'm still bringing both of those and I'll just longhand all over the margins and then I'll go back and it'll take me, you know, 10 hours to go through and add all that other stuff and address those notes. So it's the same kind of process, but now I do it in bigger chunks than I used to. Do you ever over process it, like change the dialogue over and over and over? searching for something perfect or is it your first thought usually the good thought both i mean with dialogue i usually don't need to change it much usually the thing that changes about dialogue is uh you know um is uh the mediation of the dialogue like sometimes uh, i'll be uh, the dialogue scene will be coming out of me really fast and um i don't like the tempo of it because it's too fast i don't want it to sound like repartee so You know, you need to mediate that dialogue with, you know, observation or physical description or things like that. So I'll go back in. I tend to flesh things out in later drafts. Um, I don't overwrite. I tend to underwrite, get the gist of it out, and then go in there and sort of caress it and make it breathe and give it the tempo I really want want it to have. But like the words themselves in the dialogue, you know, um, the verisimilitudes of like my dialogue language are pretty – they come out – 
pretty full form. But, you know, I have to work on uh, exposition more that way, you know, descriptions and stuff like that. But to be honest with you, I don't, I don't caress my language until it's purple. If it comes out somewhat, uh, you know, lyrical, um, because it comes out that way and it needs to be that way, well, then I might go back and caress it a little. But even that sometimes comes out pretty close to how I want it. A lot of the time I'm just trying to avoid lyricism because it just, you know, I, I don't know. I read a lot of this fiction where it's like, I mean, for me, the the words are just the blood inside the story. Everything is in service of the story. And I read all these books, like these kids that come out of MFA programs. And it's like, you know, I, I, there's a, I use an example in, in Lawn Boy where he's like reading this novel and, you know, the protagonist is walking across the parking lot eating an apple and her thoughts are a smoky chiaroscuro of family nostalgia or so, you know what I mean? It's like, it's just, you know, she's eating an apple, just get her to point A, point B. I mean, save the lyricism from when, you know, your father's dying in your arms and you're on the edge of the great divide or whatever. I, I, I just so, you know what I'm saying? I, it's weird. And it sounds, I mean, writing to me is less about words and more about story. I've developed a facility with the language, just like any tool, just like a carpenter, you know, just from using it so much. I always have the tool there. I know what it is. I have the vocabulary and I know what I'm trying to do. But like really more importantly to me is just um, characters, motivations, characters, evolutions, uh, you know, uh, the interplay with the reader and the writer, you know, this dance. How can I how can I make the writer fully engaged how can i make the writer my partner you know whether it's through things like red herrings or misdirect or um just 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 always being very aware of of what the reader knows reader, yeah. versus what i the authorial know that, that that was the thing about all my bad stuff you know all the bad books i wrote is that they were so authorial it was just like the reader. That's just the person that's blessed with my final work. You know, it's all about me, you know, hmm, scratching my chin and, you know, smelling the coffee in my own breath and like, you know, feeling like the whole Western literary canon was behind my shoulder and just writing the most pretentious, like, uh, I don't know, just, Bullshit. <laughs> well, yeah, just, just to, just way too self-aware, just uh, like a sort of performance anxiety almost. I think your style is balanced out quite a bit and you leave some something to the imagination. You will lead the horse to water, but not necessarily describe everything that's going on to the about the water, but you'll give a good introduction to that. And uh, I like that style a lot. Um, I, want, I want to get back to writing and stuff, but let's talk about these jobs that led up to this career path. Tell me what it was like to be a telemarketer. Oh, it just depends on the gig. I dude, I tell. First of all, I did this in the in the heyday of telemarketing. Like I was at, I should write a telemarketing novel because it was an amazing subculture. So this is like mid '80s Silicon Valley. You know, like the sprawl of Sunnyvale, Santa Clara, San Jose. Um, you know, right at the sort of the beginning of the tech boom. But like back then. You didn't really have technology. You didn't have the internet. People answered their rotary phones. And, and so I would do, I did all the, they were basically like boiler room operations, man, run by drug addicts and people who lived in, people who lived in like ten, tenant hotels. Like you would show up to work and the door would be chained. It's like, well, I guess I'm not getting that paycheck. And um, so you would do stuff like, you know, uh, I'd be peddling fire safety guides or, uh, you know. Hot they, item. They'd have merch, you know what I mean? Ostensibly. I'd work 
in a few places that I don't even think delivered stuff. But like, you know, it might be mops for veterans of foreign wars or whatever. And and um, the worst one I ever did was telemarketing sunglasses because, you know, it's just not easy. You know, I think they look great on you. Um, what do you look like? I, you know, I mean, it's hard to, to sell somebody sunglasses. But I mean, the big selling point was the UV. So basically... My my thing with the oh, telemarketing, I was one of the best. I was usually like the lead guy in the room because I had taps. You know, it's kind of like a sleazier version of Glenn Gurry, Glenn Ross, how they all want the taps. I had my own taps. You, you quickly realize that there's people that give and then there's everybody else. So you find the people that give and it, God dang, it was usually some, I feel bad, but look, come on, I'm a 19-year-old drug addict. It's, it's like there's these little old gray-haired ladies sitting in their house that have disposable income that will actually, oh, you know, they'll listen to you on the phone. They'll, it's pretty exploitive. Anyway, I had this one old lady called A.J. Worth, man. I, was, I just, I remember her name. I'm so grateful her all to the her. Time? She lived up in Los Altos. I call her and I'd always have a different name. You know, I'm either, you know, Bill Steele for the firefighters or Chaz Linford or, you know, I'd, I'd make up names or take names of people I knew and um, and I would get her for all these different things even the sunglasses see you get the old people on there you're like you know the uv sun rays will make you go blind and you know and so it doesn't matter what the sunglasses look like you know she's gonna look like she's you know helming the starship enterprise in these things but she's know. got all day to worry about it too right yeah i know i'm not proud of that it teaches you a lot though right yeah, I I, uh, you, I feel lucky to have survived my adolescence in a lot of ways. I made a lot of bad decisions. I was running with a really, uh, really risky crowd, doing a lot of really risky things, and I'm, I feel glad I came came out of that okay. You know, I learned a lot of lessons. I'm not proud of a lot of the stuff I did, exploiting old people for their money. It's, it's a journey. Yeah. Um, that must have translated great into selling cars. I didn't actually sell cars now. It was no. worse. I worked the lots. I uh -huh. probably should have been selling cars and had I stayed doing it long enough. But me and my buddy had a independent car detailing thing. Basically, we had this abrasive stuff and they would, you know, we would we would go to the lots as contractors, go to all the car lots in like Montana and Missoula, you know, be like 110 degrees. And we first thing we do is say, you know, to try to get our foot in the door because there was every town's got their detail guy that does this. And so we'll go... Give us a free demo, man. You know, we'll, we'll show you what we can do. You know, mm -hmm. we're young and hungry. We're cheaper than this other guy. And so the idea is they're supposed to bring you out like a, a, a late model Miata with just a few little blemishes on it that you can take this abrasive Miata. stuff and buff them out and make it look, you know, up the resale value, five, six hundred bucks, just a little curb appeal. Little shine. But every time in Montana, I don't know if they just didn't get it or what, but they would bring us out like some half-totaled car with like miscolored uh, sidewalls and it's like, you know, what can we do here? You know, but uh, so, yeah, I didn't actually get to sell the cars. I just detailed them inside and out. Mostly, to, the stuff's awful. It's just, a, it's, a, it's like pumice and you put it on a rag and so you got this little chip or whatever in the paint and all it does is the abrasive picks up the paint from around it and spreads it a little thin till it's over the place and it works good for the size of a thumbprint, but... <laughs> yeah, there was a hot, hot business in in the 80s i remember everybody had a auto detail thing we'll, we'll come to you it was it was prevalent just like valley parking and a lot of things that were unnecessary back then that we all partaked in yeah this was about 89 i think and I, the other thing i remember about that job is my buddy brian bignall and it was his business he had 
the first cell phone I'd ever seen, but this thing looked like one of those wirelesses they used in World War One, and it was just splattered with paint, but it was literally like eight, nine pounds, as big as your forearm. But we thought we were so cool with that thing because nobody had one. Cool, I don't right? even think it worked in Missoula because there was no like tower or whatever, but like we carried this, you know, we'd test paint on it and stuff like that. It was so big that you could use it as a canvas to test paint. I had one of those big phones that was cordless, though, a house phone. And I remember you could get reception about 100 yards away from the house. So I would sit in my car outside the house with the cordless house phone, pretending I had a cell phone back then. That's how bad it was. And it was giant. It was the length of my arm. That's cool. And I was like, I'm so cool. I got a a cell phone here. But I don't even know if we called it cell phones back then. Uh, I think they were just called uh, mobile phones or something. I don't know. Yeah. It was crazy back then. Um, you did some radio and uh, a little TV show. Is that correct? No, I did some no. film stuff. I never did a TV show. I mean, I've been I've been on lots of those, like you know, AM magazine, Good Morning Minneapolis thing, where you go uh, on just after the fourth grade rural roller derby girls or something like that, and then they ask you the most inane questions you've ever heard. Like yeah. you, you think you've prepared, you've done a thousand interviews. You think you've heard every question ever, and then you get on one of those, you know, Good Morning St. Paul shows, and they will just ask you some. I don't. I can't even think of an example. Just think of the most inane question that has nothing to do with writing. Right. You know, what do you eat when you write or something? You're just like, does your mom make it. good chicken noodle soup? Um, now the radio thing was just something that fell on my lap. I, I at that point, I think I'd already written. I was, I don't know, late twenties. I'd already written like three or four novels that weren't published, and I was driving around in my mom's old car. I inherited from her. I think it was like a Nova three on the tree. Nice. Not uh, not as nice as it sounded. Um, but uh, the tape deck broke. And so I started listening to sports radio, KJR 950 sports radio. And they were having this contest. And so I don't know, I can do that. And so I went in my friend's recording studio, made a tape, sent it in. And then I won the contest. So the winner of the contest got to uh, have his own show. And it was supposed to be, I, I soon realized, just like one show. Like you were supposed to come on on a Sunday for two hours and that was it, you won. But I did a really good job apparently. And Tom Lee, I think was the guy's name, it was the program director. And he's like, hey, how would you like to do this every Sunday? So I started doing it every Sunday. And then while I was doing that, I was talking to my friend with the recording studio. And I was like, man, we should do this comedy show at your studio. Because I got this other idea what I'd really want to do on the radio. It's not just yap about sports or, you know, evergreen interpersonal questions i wanted to do comedy and and so we started developing this show while i was doing that show and eventually we found markets for that show and put it into syndication and then um realized what a dumb business model we had because it was like a saturday night one hour show that took like 90 man hours to produce one hour 30 actors but we cornered the market it was like the national lampoon radio hour 30 years later but nobody else was doing it because why? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so we got in like 30 markets and we're making like $1,200 a month or something. And like, you know, it was it was fun. It taught me a lot about writing in a, in a, in a, in a weird way, in the same way that writing scripts did in Hollywood. Uh, uh, sort of writing without the visual sense hones your senses in a way. You know, there's just so much. It's, a, it's completely different. Writing comedy for the radio is so different than writing comedy for, you know, the stage. 
Yeah, did you have the sound effects, the cowbell and all oh, that stuff? We, you know, we most at the time, most sound effects were so bad. You know, you would get these licensed studio sound effects CDs. We must have had about 40 of them. But we found that um, the sound effects were so bad often that we would just make our own. So we, we produced some of the greatest sound effects ever. We need some guy through a jungle. I'd be just like drunk off my ass, rolling around in the vocal room full of newspaper, just like, shh. And, but we had the best, you know, jungle combing sound effect ever. We would just make a lot of, make a lot of them up because the CDs were so bad. And we got so used to hearing them then there's uh, we, we could go see movies and like, you'll hear some stuff like some ambient sound on a corner, you know, like when your private eyes walking by and you'll hear some hooker go, Hey baby, what you doing? And we would recognize that from that. It's like, that is, that's like ambient sound from that one. That's and you hilarious. hear it, you'd hear it in all kinds of Hollywood movies. They, they, you know, they just put it in, in the, in the, in the sound design, you know, these stock sound effects. Cause it's just ambient stuff. But we, we were so used to hearing them that we could recognize them in movies all the time. Um, let's take a quick break. Thank our sponsors. Our podcast is brought to you by That's a Sum Pizza. Using a 120-year-old starter from the Klondike Gold Rush, they make unique sourdough crusts that can't be found anywhere else in the world. That's a Sum Pizza also delivers wine and beer. Call 206-842-2292. Order online at thatsasum.com or download That's a Sum Pizza app on Android and iOS. Congratulations to the team of Alan Raymond and Will Grant, who brought home the first place trophy from the recent Caputo Cup at the Pizza and Pasta Show in Atlantic City. So, John, you were talking about doing that review about music. Is that the first time you started really like writing? And how, how did that evolve, I guess? Um, what made you start loving writing? Again, I think it was uh, behavioral management strategy uh, in third grade. Okay, so my sister died when I was seven, six, and um, she died in a freak car accident. And my mom and dad broke up after 25 years of marriage. And so my dad kind of moved us up here to Bainbridge and then left us here. My mom, single mom of four, not a lot of money. And um, I had also skipped a grade. I started, I was the youngest kid in kindergarten. Because my, you know, my mom had five kids. She's like, okay, he's right on the deadline. Let's get him in school. So I, I was the youngest kid in kindergarten, but then they sk- skipped me to a second and third grade, uh, an advanced third grade level class. And so I was in third grade when we moved here. And my mom was really worried about socially how I'd be, you know, being so much younger. So she took the opportunity to have me redo third grade so that I'd only be one year younger than everybody. Um, and God love her for doing that, because who wants to be the only kid in gym class with no pubic hair or whatever, you know, in sophomore year. So I'm glad she did that, but uh, it made, I mean, I'd already had the curriculum, and then there was all these outside forces in my uh, in my life pushing on me, and I think I was just in a, I started to be a behavioral problem in, uh, in school. And Mrs. Hanford, Wilkes Elementary, who uh, I credit many times for saving my life. She really did. She saw that I, I, I liked to write. She couldn't control me. I was just, dude, I would have been a Ridland kid if anybody was really looking close enough. I mean, I was climbing the walls. Plus, like I said, there was all this stuff. My family was exploding, and, and, and I was just in a kind of an at-risk situation. And Mrs. Hanford just let me sit and write in a corner all year long and accomplish two things. By doing that, she saved the rest of the class from me, and, um, and then she made a writer out of me. 
Um, I still see my friends from that class. Uh, yeah, my friend Willie Diaz, uh, Brian Thompson, who lives on the island. I still have friends from that class, and they all they all remember that. It was like I was uh, I sat alone in a corner and wrote all my third grade. And, and so then in fourth grade, I did this thing called the Young Authors Conference at Seattle Pacific University, where I got to go and they published my children's story. I wrote the story called The King Without a Crown. It was about a king without a crown. And a, <laughs> I never it, it, a beloved king without a crown, a fable. Um, and so they published it at Seattle Pacific University, and I don't know, I don't know how many copies, you know, a couple hundred, but it went to the library systems all over the state, kind of thing. And so fourth grade was my auspicious beginning of my publishing career, um, and then nothing for like twenty nine years, nothing, just like five hundred rejections. So I mean, I, I started writing very early. By the time I was in high school, yeah, I had the fanzine when I was thirteen, fourteen years old, but I was writing all kinds of stuff. I mean, I wrote stories. I, I wrote my first novel when I was 18, um, and another one when I was like 19, another one when I was 22, another one when I was 24, and just I just kept writing these novels just as, you know, something to do as much as anything. I mean, I, I guess I, at some point I started to try to get them published, but not in any organized or, or, or shrewd way, you know, just sending 500-page manuscripts to the bottom of office buildings in New York and getting form rejections and you know i just i never really i i guess i kind of knew all along i was doing it out of a sort of necessity and then that that was m more important than that was your outlet yeah it's like i said the focus I, I, it's something i've known intuitively all along and you know at some point i started to connect with readers and that's when it all really came together to me because that the act of writing is all about connection you know I was writing in, in basically in a vacuum for decades, you know, I didn't have anybody, my mom wasn't even reading this stuff, you know, but then, then once I finally found readers, what a revelation that was, you know what I mean? Because then I found somebody, you know, it's like I've been broadcasting this signal out into the ether, but there was never anybody to receive it at the other end. Once I had that, then like the, my whole gestalt with writing kind of changed in a way my whole the whole way i framed it mentally like I, I i became aware not of my audience but aware of this idea that it's uh two ends of the same thing there's me the reader and me the writer you know me the writer on the front end but me the reader on the back end and so that changed the way i approached what i wrote that's when i got better do you think you have different styles on different books or well, i yeah i think so i mean i i think you know I think all my books are, I don't know, they're quite different. But, I mean, I, I do think there's a, a, a voice and a temperament that's in common. You know, sometimes I use a bigger authorial voice that's almost Victorian, like in West of Here. But then there are parts of the modern parts of that story where I think you see the same sort of, uh, sort of buoyant modern realist conversational voice that I use in other books. I mean, I think the thing that ties it all together as a body of work is just – humor and pathos you know yeah, those are yeah. the wells i always go to and so like as radically as the books are different I, I really think they all kind of fit together under one sensibility where did the idea of lulu come from lulu is very much a kind of a first novel thing like i'd been building up my whole life even though i'd written seven or eight books by that time i think by the time you know by the time i was writing lulu i'd started finally like publishing short stories and stuff and I, I was building an actual audience and a few people knew who I was and they were reading and and I realized that I was finally going to actually have a chance to probably publish a novel if I could execute it well enough 
because I'd position myself at least somebody would listen to me. You know what I mean? I published here, 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 and here. So yeah, let's see your book. So um, I, I just I, I wanted to write a book about. Uh, I really wanted to write a book that had the velocity velocity of adolescence. This is kind of, I mean, I don't even know what the YA genre is. This is kind of, I mean, I don't mean I wanted it to be a YA novel. I wanted it to be an adult novel that had the velocity of adolescence. And and so um, it was just a, a novel about teenage obsession, but about everything else I loved in my life too, you know, baseball. You know, it's kind of a love story to Vin Scully, but really it's a love story to Dave Niehaus. It's just that the novel was set in L.A. And um, it's it's just loaded with, you know, personal experiences. But um, it was very much in the um, traditional Buildings Roman conception of things. You know, like the first line of the book is kind of a nod and a wink to, you know, both great ex- – or uh, David Copperfield and, and um, Catcher in the Rye. So like in, you know, Catcher in the Rye, the book opens talking about how he's not going to give you the David Copperfield stuff. And so I just subverted that one more time with a wink and a nod to let people know I knew I was familiar with where I was going here. I sort of redeemed Dickens in the beginning of the book with I am going to tell you all the Copperfield stuff. Um, so I just wanted to write a no- I just wanted to write a Billings Roman about a, a coming of age novel. And then I wrote a coming of middle age novel with the, the revised fundamentals of caregiving. Then I wrote a coming of old age novel with Harriet. So it's all part of a loose continuum, I guess. And is West of Here drawn from some personal experiences? I know it's set out here. Yeah, it's all, I mean, really, ultimately, it all is. You know, I mean, embellished experiences. Yeah. I mean, and, and so you, I mean, I think the, the, the main thing is, is, the the emotional content like i mean you don't have to have the exact same thrilling experience to know what it is to be thrilled and so you just jump through that empathic window and and try to experience it as your character's experience it's like living again i mean that book was great because i got to go over the Olympic mountains in the worst winter on record in 1890 and I never had to get out of my bathrobe you know but it felt real let me tell you man my toes got cold down there I had to put a heater on you know do you think that's the one that really launched you to I don't want to use this word but failing with my vernacular is kind of superstar (laughs) author status (laughs) launch and superstar I don't know I don't know if I'd go that far bud I'm keeping the lights on. I'll say that. I'm happy. I got a nice I'm I'm happy with my level of success. I'm not chomping at the bit to have a number one New York Times seller for five hundred weeks or anything like that. I just I just want to keep the lights on and be able to keep my whole life in balance. And I don't I, I mean as weird as it sounds, I don't I don't want it to become and there's a there's an expression called writer famous. Like I'm writer famous, which like compared to anything else is nothing. I mean, the most famous writer is like, you know, one-tenth as famous as the Encyclopedia Britannica kid. You know what I mean? It's like, it's just, it's all relative. So um, I don't know. I think that one reached a bigger audience. Than, but I, I think really it just started with Lulu. Lulu talked to people like a friends and, and, and it sold a lot of books. I sold a lot of trade paper originals of Lulu and a very small publisher from Brooklyn. And I think that put me in a position to have a lot of people want to publish West of Here. And yeah, then West of Here hit a bigger audience. But it, I see it all as one, you know, Linear fashion that you're going in a certain direction. Yeah, have, hopefully up every time. Yeah. You know, but it well, doesn't. You know, peaks and valleys. Yeah. We, hopefully, no, no valleys. Just 
higher peaks. They just don't have to be that much higher than the last, you know? Gotcha. You get from Kilimanjaro to Everest, you know, it's only a thousand feet difference or something. But, you know, you want to keep moving in that same direction. Yeah. I feel like life is like a river. You ebb and flow and you adjust and hopefully you're continuing on downstream. Sure. Yeah. But, you know, I can't, I can't afford those valleys professionally because it's a, it's a cold, cold business out there, man. You're as good as your sales track. And so, you know, when John Steinbeck published his first four novels were, you know, complete commercial failures. I mean, like they didn't sell, they sold like literally like 2000 copies kind of thing. And, and, but, you know, he hit with Tortilla Flat. I think that was like his fifth book. Publishers used to be a little more patient with their talent that way. Now it's just like, I mean, if you have a successful debut, and I did, I was lucky enough, I was in good shape. If I had not a successful debut, no matter how good it was, no matter how critically received, well-received it was, if my next book doesn't sell, you know, I'm gonna have a, I'm gonna have an agent saying, "Well, let's change your name and try to sell the next one." Is you know, Bart Stevenson or whatever. I mean, it's it's cold out there. It is really cold. I feel very grateful to be making a living. At it's, it, it's hard to rebound after a failure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know the the, the road is little riddled with you know novelists that wrote two novels, but they didn't have the sales track to, you know inspire anybody to publish them a third time. Right. You know, I think once you get past that third or fourth novel and, and you can, I don't, I, I, I feel like I could take a deep sigh. Now I feel like somebody's going to publish me always. I don't know how well public, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like I've established myself enough that that can't happen, but I like to write hungry anyway. So I'm just always scared. I'm just, I'm going to stay hungry. Got to want it. That's a great way to look at it. Yeah, no, man. I have a buddy, my buddy Jarrett Middleton, who just wrote a book called Dark and Saw. He's, I don't know, 15 years younger than me, and he is hungry. He's hustling. He's doing all the – I've been mentoring him for years. But we come over and have writing sessions where on my Sunday-Monday thing where it's like he writes one place I do, and then about 9 o'clock we convene and talk and drink beer and stuff like that. But it's good for me to be around somebody that that's hungry too. It's like a locker room. You know what I mean? You don't want just a locker room full of veterans that have been there. you got to have that infusion of – young blood to you got to keep you got to stay hungry if you're going to write with enough you know there's so much stuff that is written that just you read it and you're like okay somebody wrote this it's got to read like it had to be written and so to 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 maintain that intensity to maintain that feeling that like it's going to jump off the page and be alive like somebody's with that urgency you got to be hungry yeah i think it bodes well for you too I, I know you're pretty well known for this in mentoring and uh, helping other writers out that through teaching other people, you're reinforcing your good habits and uh, it, it shows. Yeah. I've, I mean, I believe in just as making your ecosystem better. You know, I got to exist in this ecosystem of independent and commercial publishing. Well, any way I can make the whole thing better. Uh, is a better environment for me. It's kind of like, a, you know, if I'm a football player, I want to actually go out there and do some of the groundskeeping too so I know what I'm up against, you know. I know you're a big Hawk fan. Who's your favorite player? Probably Earl Thomas or Bobby Wagner. Yeah, I love B-Wags. And I love I love Doug Baldwin too. I like the guys that are just completely professional. Um, I'm, I'm fine with them being outspoken too. In the case of Earl Thomas and Bobby Wagner, not very outspoken. All their speakings on the field and in the, case of Doug Baldwin, very outspoken, and I like what he has to say. Um, 
Yeah, I have a lot of favorite. Pete Carroll, man. I love Pete Carroll. Yeah, I love he's the high energy. I just love the culture he creates. I love the, the you know, I know it rings hollow to some people, this uh, constant upbeatness, but it's totally true. I mean, it's just like, it's like my preschool teacher. Shout out to ICP, Island, Island Co-op. Wow preschool uh teacher ellen does such a wonderful job of just like instilling this you know every pitfall is a is a teaching moment is a learning moment so like it's this philosophy that actually welcomes the bumps in the road and so pete carroll that's why i mean you watch him on the sidelines and you're you're just you, you feel like you're about to vomit on the couch you're just so anxious you're having a miserable time i don't even know why i do it i'm so anxious i'm yelling at the tv and pete carroll's down on the sideline having fun and he's the coach. You know what I mean? I got to just admire that. He's over 70. He's running up and down the sideline. But he's having fun. And when they lose, he's upbeat about it because that's the truth, man. You got to turn that adversity into more motivation, you know? And so that really speaks to me because, you know, I mean, I, I, I had eight unpublished books. Didn't stop me from writing number nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. Do you think he'll ever stop writing? No. You'd be Ron L. Hubbard's standards. No. If I think status. I'm going to die in like six months and I have some way to know that that's going to happen, if they said you got six months, I would be like, I'm not going to start another novel. Because that's the big fear. Man, when you're really hot and you feel like you're writing good and somebody's going to connect and you feel like this is this is special or something, you just look extra hard when you cross the street. You just don't want the thing to – no one wants to write Edwin Drood. You know, I'm the biggest Dickens fans ever, but I, I, I can't read The Mystery of Edwin Drood, his last novel, because it's unfinished. That would be the most frustrating thing. So I'll stop. I would stop writing if I knew I wasn't going to be able to finish something. But as long as I think I can finish something, I can't imagine ever stopping. Right on. Um, tell me what it was like to see a book turn into a movie and that process. I, I know you're pretty humble about the process it it had to be different than than writing um and they had to cut certain things out was that deflating of an ego in any way was it euphoric seeing your tale come to life on the big screen it was great i mean it was just like i mean i worked in hollywood i already knew what to expect i mean i knew they would make it but they did, a, a, you know, a buddy film on the road. I knew, I knew they'd cut the first act. I mean, Rob made all the decisions that, you know, Hollywood's going to make. And I'm, I was okay with that. I mean, the best thing about it for me was I, 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 did, I didn't have this uh, proprietary vibe about the whole thing. I don't, you know, I don't, I wasn't going to be a precious artist about it. It's a great opportunity. It paid me a lot of money to do nothing. I mean, I already wrote the book. I got a lot of free money. They were super gracious. They had me on set. They, they you know. They they made a nice film. It was poignant. It was funny. It was cute. It didn't have the. It didn't rip your heart out like the novel. It didn't. It didn't have that sense of overcoming re, irredeemable loss quite as much. But like I liked what they did with it, and mostly it just you know, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? Somebody's going to walk out of the theater and well, in this case Netflix, and say the book was better. It's a win win. <laughs> I see. But a lot of guys just get too precious, too attached to their work. I mean, I know the dictates between a 300-page novel and a two-hour movie are just so different. I know. I've written screenplays. It's like, you know, uh, you should just be working on your next book. Just be glad they're making your book into a movie. Don't try to control them. That's why I was so welcomed onto the set and why they wanted me at Sundance because I was some just like hands-off about it. It's like, you know, I was on set mostly as a caregiver, not a writer. 
You know, and just showing Paul Rudd how to lift Craig and, you know, this is how we brush teeth, things like that. But like, I mean, I don't, there's a reason I think a lot of writers, they don't want the writer around because A, they're appropriating the work and they're going to do things with it that the, if you've touchy in your ego or, in, you know, nothing will just, look, the ego, you write eight unpublished books. You, you know what I mean? I don't, ego's I, I, ego's not going to be a big problem for me at this point, I don't think. You know what I mean? I also had the advantage of watching all my friends become rock stars as an adolescent and seeing who dealt with it well, who didn't deal with it well. And, you know, uh, you, what do you, you know, there's a lot of precious artists out there, man. That's all I can say. I mean, like, you just got to be glad. I mean, I get to write books for a living, man. There's no room for ego there. You just got to be grateful. Yeah. So, you know, the, my experience with the movie is when we closed Sundance, I saw it for the first time. Rob wouldn't let me see any of the dailies, anything before. Nothing. Nothing. And I saw it at Sundance with, you know, audience of like, 22, 2300 people, standing ovation, last film at Sundance. I loved it. Went back and saw it the next day, another screening, Hated same theater, it. 22, 2300 people, and I liked it. Oh, yeah? And then, yeah, and then I think I kind of watched it on Netflix once. It's like, I never want to watch this again. So I think if I just kept dwelling on it, sure. Well, it wasn't like that in the book. You know, what are you going to do? I mean, some people are going to be like, well, he was 39 in the book and they made him 37. And I mean, you know, you just can't. It's like being a parent, you know, at some point you got to put them on the bus and just kind of trust that, uh, you know, teach them independent, the teacher will take care of them and the bus driver will take care of them. And shout out to Chris Walker, local bus driver. That's right. Shout out to Ellen, who is a phenomenal, uh, school teacher. Oh, did you, did you have any of your kids at ICB? You know, Ellen I did not. We went to BCNS, um, but Ellen helped with the kids up. Oh, yeah, that's where I first met you. Yeah. I didn't know Ellen was involved with that. Yeah, she was um, a real advocate for it. It was good times back then. I miss that place. She loves Pete Carroll, too. She's a big Pete Carroll fan. Yeah. Well, Pete's married, so sorry, Ellen. Not like that. <laughs> She's married, too. Um, tell me about Lawn Boy. What is this book about? Oh, it's class divides. Uh the moribund American dream, trying to make it happen. What is the American dream? Um, inventing yourself. Uh, or in our, our case, reinventing ourselves many times, many ways. Yeah. Yeah, that's my only theme, really, is reinvention. Maybe a couple other themes, but basically, yeah, I go back to that well all the time. Uh, yeah, so, so I always thought I was going to write a big novel about class, kind of like I wrote a novel about history in West of here. And, you know, with West of Here, I used this big, I decided to use this really huge narrative apparatus and, and because I wanted to write not a historical novel, but a novel about history and how it worked and how the architectonic whole, I guess you would call it, of history is all really ground in the daily moments of our own lives across time. You know, uh, like uh, Faulkner said, the past is not the past. So I thought I was going to take this big, wide view of class the way I did with history. But then um, I was in a point with my publisher where I was under contract for a book, but I didn't feel like working on the book. It was a book I ultimately threw away called The Dream Life of Huntington Sales. It didn't know what it was. The center wouldn't hold. I, I tried to rewrite the book five times over a period of 10 years. Um, and it just it never worked. It never will work. Um, so I was at a frustrating point with that where I was supposed to be delivering a book, which would, uh, then become 
This is your life, Harriet Chance. But before that, I started this website. I wanted to write something just for fun, man. I was feeling like my career kind of just sort of breathing down my neck a little bit. And, and it, 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 at heart, I'll always be a starving kind of performance artist like person anyway. So I, I was like, I'm going to start this website about a lawn, landscaper because I used to landscape. And he just I just want just this working class, you know, half Chicano kid that, 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 you know, lives in Suquamish, but mows, mows lawns here on the island and, and does landscaping here. And so it just started as a blog anonymously. It was written by Mike Munoz. Nobody knew it was me. I didn't tell anybody. Um, I got .net because, you know, everyone's getting .com. So it was Mike, Mike Munoz saves the world .net. And it was just like monkey shit brown, like an endless scroll with really terrible lawnmower gifts. And I mean, it looked like a 1991 website kind of or something. That was the idea. And it was just kind of Mike blogging about landscaping. And then his life started to, you know, his his personal life, you know, the special needs older brother, um, his, uh, you know, challenges with employment and so forth started to work its way in it. And then I realized that I had found the voice to write this big class novel. It didn't need to be this big multifaceted, multi-voiced thing. It just, I just needed that one irreverent working class voice. And I discovered that just doing something fun. And so, um, w once I started the novel, it almost wrote itself because I knew who I was dealing with. I knew what I was dealing with. I'd been, I'd been, these bigger themes had been, I've been gestating them for years, but then I found a vehicle surprisingly and, and never had so much fun writing a novel. I think it's my funniest book. I can say that for it. My funniest and my angriest. What's the anger part of it? Oh, you know, the, uh, where to begin? The inequities of the world. No health care when you're mowing lawns and stuff like that. There's that. Yeah, there's everything. There's no, uh, you know. No pleasing I mean, everyone. Uh, every side of the political spectrum, you know. I mean, the vagary of identity politics in terms of trying to do, invent yourself. I mean, that's the, those are also obstacles that you have to, you know. I mean, Mike is, Mike, is, Mike is trying to invent somebody he's not with no help. Um, that's challenging. I don't, I, don't, I don't even know if that makes sense. We'll have to read the book. Yeah. Coming out in April, right? Yeah, April 3rd. If people want to learn more about you, where would they go? You gotta, oh, come on, Google. I don't Google. know. Just Google me. All right. Google him. I got a website. It's not that informative, but it's got some cool beer bottles on the splash page. Yeah. One more for yeah, a six just, pack, right? Yeah. I, I'd say if you want to learn more about me, just read the books. Just go down to Eagle Harbor Books. They got them all. Will do. Will do. Hey, I got this little segment called Fast Five. I'm going to ask you five questions. You give me the answers as quick as possible. Fast Five. Fast Five. Fast Five. Fast Five. Fast Five. Fast five. Okay. If you had a superpower, what would it be? Invisibility. Nice. What's... Eavesdropping advantages. Nice. <laughs> you can tell stories more, right? Yeah. Um, what's the best quality of your wife? The one I appreciate the most is her patience, but saying her best is, I don't know, her, her heart and her... her... What's the worst thing of ha having three kids? Uh, arsenic hour. That hour between, you know, right before dinner in bed every night. Like those two hours. Hellish. Mexico, Mexico or Canada? Ah, that 
that's that's tough, man. They both look very attractive. I spent a lot of time in Victoria. This isn't quick. See, you asked the wrong guy. Oh, I'm going to say Mexico. I like it down in Baja. The beer's cheap. Okay. I noticed I favorite hawk was one of my questions, so we're going to have to go to favorite baseball player of all time. Well, got to go with Willie Mays. Nice. Um, Ken Griffey Jr. being a close second. Yeah, you like Ken? I like athletics. Athletic center fielders that have five tools and have fun playing the game. Yeah, he always played with a smile until he came back here. And that smile left, and so did he in his car. Well, Johnny, thanks for coming in today. Our guest today has been Johnny Evison. Get out there and read his books. Thanks, my partner. Thanks for having me, buddy. I look forward to talking to you soon. You bet. Thank you. Thanks, buddy. Thank you.